Welcome to episode four of the NP Dude, a podcast that gives nurse practitioners a voice. So there's my tagline, right? Um, getting some really good response on Facebook and my website. I I'm, can't be happier with how it is. And I, I've just asked a handful of friends and, and put a couple shares on Facebook and, and uh, it's really doing pretty well considering. Uh, this is more of a hobby for me. So if this takes off, great. Um, I'm not asking any money for anything. This is just me being me and having fun and an outlet for me to use my voice. So I appreciate the feedback. Now, I'm just going to say building website is a way harder than I thought it was going to be, even with WordPress. Um, so it is pretty archaic. I am an engineer, as I've said in my other posts. So this is pretty functional and not real pretty, which is the difference between an engineer and an architect. Architects tend to be more aesthetic. Engineers are more practical and just kind of utilitarian in view. So it will eventually, I'm sure, get prettier. But uh, for right now, at least the, the podcast can be downloaded. And um, I'm working on trying to make the file smaller too. So that's just kind of some generic stuff about what's going on with the Facebook and with my website. Today, I want to talk contracts, right? My background as a lawyer, I think I've got some clout to be able to do that. And I'm seeing some questions on Facebook about how to negotiate contracts and things like that. And I think that just opens up some discussion. And I'm not going to go real long on this, but I do think that there's some things that I can give some advice about contracts in general and then uh, more specific to nurse practitioners with negotiating their contracts. So the contracts, when you get a contract and you're sitting there and you're looking at this thing and it doesn't matter if it's a contract to buy real estate, it doesn't matter if it's a contract for for uh, you know a collaborative agreement, it could be contract for anything, right? Including your contract for employment. Don't freak out. It's just words. You guys are all really smart individuals. You, you know, you've you've done this. You've done a ton of reading. You've done a ton of writing. There's no reason to freak out about what you're looking at. It's just words. Now, lawyers will tell you that you need to have a lawyer to review any document just to be safe, and that's just being safe, right? And I don't disagree with that. I think that, sorry, I'm letting my dog out. I think that's a, that's a good, a good thing to do, right? You know, have a lawyer look over something if you're unsure about it, but here's the trick. I'm going to give you guys some free, uh, advice. Um, not legal because I get me in trouble, right? Cause some of you guys are in other States. When you are reviewing a contract for someone, most lawyers don't know your industry. Right, unless you go to a lawyer that's read a lot of collaborative agreements, or a, a, a person like me that has both uh, healthcare and legal, you're really not going to get some. If you go to Joe Schmo, that's recommended at the, at the bar association, they're going to look at that document and say, "Oh crap! I can read the contract. I can tell you what's in the contract, but I have no idea if this is a good deal or not." And that really comes down to the industry. So when you look at a, in an industry, and it could be the industry for selling plastics or cars or uh, providing services such as nurse practitioner services, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's what the norm is in that industry that you need to look at relative to what your agreement says. And a lot of lawyers aren't going to know that. So you're going to pay them to review a contract. They're going to tell you the things that you're already going to know, which is usually plain language in the in the document. Like, oh, well, you have to terminate. You have 60 days before you, you know, you terminate. You have to give notice. Okay, well, that's great. Is that good or bad? And they won't know unless they read a lot of them. 
And I've read a good number of them helping some of my colleagues um, with negotiations this last year um, after NP school was done. And, and I think I've got a pretty good handle on what the norms are. And plus reading some of the posts on Facebook and getting a kind of a handle on what, what's acceptable. And uh, you can join the groups and get the same information there. But the lawyers mostly aren't going to know that. So there's, there's a tidbit about lawyers. They're going to they're gonna pretend that they know to get your business. They'll read the document. They'll charge you several hundreds of dollars. And at the end of the day, they're going to tell you pretty much what you already know. And then you're going to go on gut anyways. <laughs> or what other NPs that, like, like me that know other people and what they're negotiating and what the, the typical terms are. So what are some of the things that um, are in a contract, right? Any contract... You're going to have to have a handful of things that you're going to see. The first thing is is you're going to have the parties to the contract. So you got to make sure that the parties to the contract are the people that you expect to have. It's I, Jeff, agree with so-and-so to enter into a, a binding agreement with XYZ healthcare company or XYZ physician or XYZ real estate, you know, person, whatever it is, right? So you're going to have the people in the contract. That's usually the first paragraph. If it takes two pages to get to the to who is actually entering into the contract, that's a crappy contract because it should be the first paragraph. And it should have on this date. So it gives the date and the people right in the first paragraph. Should always be that way. And that's just a standard contract type thing. The second thing you're going to see are the, the terms of the contract. And you might see some definitions up front like... Um, Jeff is a certified nurse practitioner in the state of Ohio, and he is in hereafter considered to be called NP. And then everywhere else in the rest of that contract where you see NP, that, that is an equal sign. That equals Jeff, right? So that you're going to see those terms, and then you're going to have those definitions. And then a lot of them don't. They're buried in there, but you can kind of define the terms, and that's it. Yeah, whatever. You can kind of gloss over that stuff. As long as you can figure out who's who and what what the scope is, you're okay with the definitions not being there. But a lot of them do have that. The next section is typically going to be the scope, the scope of practice. And the scope of practice can be important for nurse practitioners for a couple reasons, right? If, if I'm a mental health specialist, which I'm not, but if, say I am, and it says... Uh, NP shall hereforth provide these scope of services, including, and then it starts talking about acute inpatient care and whatever. And a lot of times you'll see HR people writing these, taking them from other people, copying and pasting. So you really got to be aware of the scope because sometimes they read through it and they gloss through it. And you've got people that are busy. You've got practitioners that are doing some of this work and they're just kind of hurrying up through it and say, that's close enough. Well, maybe it's not. So that's where you want to really pay attention to the scope of practice because you could inherently be contracting for a scope of practice. That's really outside of what maybe you should be doing, or maybe it's too limited and it says mental health, but in reality, I'm going to be doing family nurse practitioner for all ages and I'm going to be doing beyond mental health. Or maybe you're dual certified or whatever. So, so just pay attention to the scope of practice section in the contract. There's a couple other sections that um, you're typically going to see, and hopefully you don't. Um, I've been lucky, and I, I've kind of gotten out of them. Uh, I would have negotiated hard on them if I had them in there. But um, sometimes you'll see um, a non-competition clause or a non-compete portion of the agreement. And it's usually a paragraph that's towards the end. 
um, and they kind of bury you in there. And, and I think they do that by design because they've already talked about who you are, what you're going to be doing, and then now they're going to be taking away and excluding things that you can do. So the first part of the contract is all the things you're going to be doing, and then the, like usually the second half is the things you're not going to do. And that's how I remember it in my contracts classes uh, in law school was that you kind of build up the thing and then you take it away, right? And it just kind of flows better that way. So what the non-compete, what, what is a non-compete? And a lot of people know what a non-compete is. It just means I'm not going to do something, right? I'm not going to compete with my current or new employer or whoever I'm contracting with for a period of time in a period of space and potentially with a period of type of clients, a clientele. So... The most restrictive non-compete agreement you're going to get is a time, place, and uh, person, right? Who, where, what, and when, all that good stuff is going to be restricted. Now, you can have any number of combination of these in your non-compete agreements if you have one. Hopefully, you don't. Hopefully, you have an unsophisticated uh, person on the other end and says, oh, I don't really care about a non-compete, and they'll go forward with that. Now, I have my per personal philosophy I'll talk about in a minute about non-competes as a business person. But the non-compete, again, you can have it by time, which is usually a, a, the number one, right? And you'll see anywhere from one to two years. You could see six months, which is a good non-compete. Six months is pretty quick, right? Um, it is not uncommon for a non-compete to be one or two years. If it's three or four or five years, eh, eh not, not going to do it. Now, it really depends, like everything, it depends on how long versus how big versus who you're dealing with. If you're going to work in, like say me, I'm working in addiction medicine right now. If I have no desire to do addiction medicine and I go work in a family practice, if my limitation, my, rest my restriction is based upon other addiction medicine specialists, working in those for two years, I don't care. I'm going to go work in family practice. There's only one of them around where I am. So even if I were to go leave and go somewhere else, I'm probably not going to go work for a competitor because there isn't one. So I don't care. They can make it five years. It doesn't really matter to me. So you can use that as leverage when you're negotiating for more money as well. So you can use all this stuff to play off each other. So if it's really important to them for a, for a restriction that they don't want you to go compete then you can use that as leverage for money. But you got to find out. You have to talk to them about whether it's important or not. So you're going to have your time restriction. That's fine. You just kind of figure out what's the normal in your area. And again, it's regional as well. So you could be in Northeast Ohio like me, and you could see you know, five years is pretty unreasonable. You could go to two years. That's probably not unreasonable. It's on the high end of what I've been seeing you want to shoot for like one to two years in this part of the country. But you might go to California. It might be the norm is four years. It just might be. So you have to talk to other NPs in your area to find out what the standards are. And again, lawyers aren't going to know those things unless they're specifically working in that industry. So you've got your, your, your time. You've got a place, right? So I've seen a very common way of doing is radius. And it could be 25-mile radius. It could be a 50-mile radius. I've seen some pretty big numbers. But again, it depends on what you're doing. If you're a sales guy and you're traveling five states, well, then that makes sense that it would be those five states, right? But if you're a nurse practitioner and they say you're not allowed to practice in you know, a 300-mile radius, and this is a small family practice and they've got two offices in, in this, you know, neighboring towns you know, 30 miles away, that's pretty restrictive. There's no need for that. They, they have no reason or benefit for you to not practice three towns over. 
So that would be something I'd bring up to their attention. So you have to look at it and it's, you know, what makes sense relative to the circumstances. Another way I've seen restriction on location is based upon zip code. And this is pretty common too. And this seems to be making more sense to me because when somebody goes on the internet and Googles, um, you know, addiction medicine or family practice or whatever, they're going to not go three zip codes away. Um, they're, they're pretty much going to stay within their own area. So zip code is a good way to do it as well. So if you have somebody that's worried about, well, geez, I'm really worried about, you know, non, you know, non competes and I really don't want you to go and do this where this happens is and just kind of a side note where this happens is the previous NP or the previous person that they had a contract with screwed them over and left and they started up their own competing firm or they started up their own competing practice or they started up or moved in with another competing that's growing or expanding into your area. And because of your proximity, they, they're afraid of that. You know, that's, that's what this is really trying to prevent. So the zip code is another good way of doing it. Again, scope of practice is a great way to do it to make sure that your scope of practice you had, we already talked about, mirrors what the scope of practice is that they're restricting. If you've got somebody that says in their contract to you, you know what, Jeff, I really want you to work here for um, you know, women's health, whatever it is, right? It's a very specific office. But we're going to restrict your family practice in even a small location. I'm going to say, eh, that's not going to work for me because I'm not going to compete with you even in the same town you do this, I'm going to do, you know, you do X, I do Y, we, we're, our paths aren't going to cross. There's no reason for you to restrict me for that. And most people that are reasonable and going into an agreement are going to say, oh, shoot, that was just a typo. I copied and pasted it from a previous one. I didn't mean that. And if they, if they say, yeah, I do mean that, then you say, well, what are your concerns? Why are you worried about that? This is where the negotiation parts kind of kick in, right? And I'll, I'll talk about negotiation here in a minute as well. The, the last thing you're going to see the main thing that you're going to see in a contract um, is the execution portion, which is the signatures, right? And it depends on your state law and what's considered to be deemed a contract. They're all pretty standard now, but but you just that's where you want to make sure that you talk to the lawyer because you may not have a valid contract, right? You might sign it one place. They may sign a different version of the contract, but you both didn't sign the same version, and you emailed it back and forth, PDFs. And at the end of the day, you really didn't have a real true contract because both documents weren't exactly the same, and you both executed two independent contracts, which constitute in legal terms an offer to contract. And that's where some of that the legal argument comes into play. Do you have the same paper? That type of things. Um, there's other things that when you do start talking to uh, lawyers, they have standard what we call boilerplate language that will typically be in a contract. Things that will prevent, and I'm going to use some language here, parole evidence. Parole evidence is just other words and documents and things that can't be entered in and say, well, that was meant to be part of the contract, but it really wasn't. So here's where that circumstance could come up. Say you, you enter into a contract with somebody. And six months later, you guys both agree that you want to amend the contract, but you're both kind of like, I don't really feel like rewriting this contract and we have to go to lawyers and we got to get, ah, it's just a headache. Why don't we just take a piece of paper, we'll both sign it and stick it to the back of that and say, yeah, we'll just amend the contract that way. Well, some states you can do that, some states you can't. In most states, they want you, you want to make sure that that wording that you've added can really be incorporated. So you want to make sure that there's either a way, 
administratively how you agree to make changes to the contract. The best way is just to rewrite the contract, right? I mean, because then you can just say, yeah, we have a new contract. So it's easy. But you got to be careful with that. And that's the only thing. It's just good maintenance and just following up and making sure that the paperwork stays clean. So that's really the, the execution and some of those those other um, boilerplate language. That, that, that's the stuff that you're going to want to talk to a lawyer just to say, does this seem legit? I don't know what this is here for. I, it makes sense to me, I guess. But don't freak out about contracts. Contracts are not as scary as everybody makes them seem. It, most of it's plain language. If it makes sense, it's probably okay. If you don't feel comfortable with it, by all means, my response is always see your lawyer, spend a couple hundred bucks for the, the peace of mind. If you're in Ohio, call me. I'll be happy to help you or email me. I'll be happy to help you guys and give you some guidance. Um, again, it's always hypothetical in my world because I do not practice law right now and I don't have the desire to, but I am willing to help people if they have questions on this stuff. Um, my theory on negotiations. Negotiation, if somebody wants to make a deal, they're going to be more apt to negotiate, right? So it really comes down to just business sense of supply and demand. It really does. If if you're in an area like me, you don't have a lot of negotiation power. You're just going to kind of say either I want to work here or I don't. If I do, I kind of got to suck it up. I might get a couple things changed. Um, you might be able to get people to realize, oh, well, I really didn't mean that in this contract, so let's change it. And that's, I've actually done that. Um, the other things are going to be, you know, no, we really only mean to pay you X, Y, or Z. And that's it. You're only going to get this amount. And that's, you're only going to get this much vacation. And we're not going to change it. And you either take the job or not. And so it really depends on negotiation power. If you're going to rural, and I'm just going to guess because I have no idea, South Dakota, right? There's probably not a huge resource for family practice up there. Maybe there is. I don't know. But I'm guessing there's not. Some of the rural areas don't, you know, that are underserved, you're not going to get that. So you might be able to get a little bit more money because of the lack of people going in those areas. So you might be able to negotiate more. So you have to you have to look at your geography and talk to other NPs in the areas and see what see what you're looking at with that. But my philosophy on on negotiation is find out what the people are really worried about, what they really want, what's their concern and then and then push back a little bit. So you can use if if somebody just had a bad situation that they were in control, if, if, say, a family practice, because that's what I am, said, we just lost our NP, they went to a competing, blah, 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 and they're in the town, so we still have to kind of deal with them, you know, as a competitor now, and they were okay here, and we liked them, but they kind of left on weird terms, and we're really worried about that happening again. So that's valuable to them. So you can say, you know what, I'll, I'll do a two-year contract, but instead of, you, you know, X dollars, I want X plus 10%. Because I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have done a two-year contract. That's that's important to me because I want to have that flexibility to renegotiate in a year instead of two years. So you might be able to get a little bit more money in that first year, the first contract, than you would have otherwise. So you have to look at the circumstances and and um, CMEs and things like that. A lot of times people will will say, you know what, we give you five hundred hours of, of or five hundred dollars of CME. Well that's really low, right? So you might get something along the lines of two thousand in another firm or another practice, but you're probably gonna be lower on your salary. So you have to look at the difference. So I don't care if I make, you know, X dollars 
but if my if my CME money isn't there, then I want X dollars plus my CME. I don't care what the, you know what I mean? So I don't care as long as the difference between my expenditures and my income comes out to be the same as what my, my, my anticipation is. I'm good. I don't need to worry about it. It's just like buying a car. You know, I don't care if I pay $50,000 for a car, but if I get $30,000 for my trade in, my difference is 20 grand, right? So if, if I spend, you know, $30,000 and I only get $5,000 for my trade in, I'm 25. See, my difference is better, right? So I've got to make sure that where my difference is, is the better part of the deal. So don't freak out about your total salary if your CME is, is, is up or down. You just have to do the difference. Same thing with your insurance, your DEA licenses. It just depends on where you're at. So some places don't want to deal with all that stuff and say, you know, I don't want to deal with any of your crap of CMEs and all that stuff. I don't want to deal with, you know, managing, you know, approving your CMEs. I don't want to manage your DEA reimbursement. I don't want to manage your license reimbursements, all that stuff. Those are great, right? Because you can go and say, I can, I know all those costs. I can add them all up. I mean, DEA is what, $731 right now? You know, your insurance is going to be, malpractice insurance is going to be around 14, 13, 1200, somewhere in there, depending on what you're doing. So you, you could say, okay, two grand for that, another, say 800 for this, and round them up, make them a little fat, and then go in and say, okay, here's what my salary was with the other guys that were paying for all the stuff. Here's what you have uh, to pay me to make up for that difference. That's all you're doing with negotiations, is you're looking at the circumstances and you're just reacting to it. And most of the time it comes down to, I just don't really want to lose this opportunity. So you're willing to suck it up and you'll end up in a bad deal. But if they're a good company, and this is where my, my philosophy on restrictions are, um, my non-competes. My philosophy on non-competes is if you're a good company, if you're a good employer, if you're a good contractee, okay, the person that you're going to contract with, you don't need a restriction because no one's ever going to leave you. If you treat people like crap, the restrictions are usually more. And that goes for big companies too. That's any company. You can, you can walk into an organization and say, let me read your handbook section on non-competition. And if you read it and it's very, very, very strict against you, ah, turn and walk away. That means they've been bitten too many times by people leaving, Right? So that's my philosophy. If I'm ever in the position where I have people that want to come work with me, my restrictions, I'll probably have them in there, but they're going to be very, very limited just to really protect them from starting something in my own town for a period of time. And it's going to keep them from basically going to work for my competitor that's three doors down from me. If they want to go somewhere else, great. I'm not going to restrict them. I'm a pretty open guy. Let it do, let them do what they want. But and then the other side of that too is if they want to compete with me, if I'm a crappy practitioner, and they're going to beat the pants off me because I'm a crappy practitioner. You know, that's my fault, not theirs. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of less is, is more when it comes to restrictions. So those are some things, some thoughts on contracts. I know there's a lot of technical stuff in there. I know there's a lot of, you know, kind of wishy-washy, but that's what you, that's what you're at. That's what contracts is. Again, I've, I use the, the term, it's a gray question. It's not black. It's not white. It's not, this is good. This is bad. It's, it depends on what it is for you. And it depends on where you are and what your scope is and all that stuff. And asking a lawyer, is this a good deal? Most of them are not going to know. They're just going to explain what the words mean in that document to you. They're going to explain how it impacts you. Okay. 
Um, Oh, there's another one. Termination, right? Termination of the agreement. That's a, that's a section I missed to talk about, and I should should have said that in there. So usually before your restrictions, your termination. So you do your scope, then it's termination, how we get out of this thing if we don't like each other or all that good stuff. Because when you go into a contract, it's the honeymoon phase. Everybody's happy. Everybody, oh, this is going to work out so good. You're going to solve problems for them. You're taking away their pain of you know working too much and not having good practitioner there or whatever their reason for hiring or, or contracting with you is. But when you when you go to terminate, yeah, we just don't we just clash, or you do things one way, which isn't really wrong, but it's not how I do it, or you know whatever it is, you, it's time to end this thing. We I, we need to be done. You need to make sure that there's a termination agreement section. If you have a contract, you got to figure out a way of how you're going to get out of this thing if things go south. Most of them that I'm seeing is around sixty days. At least in this part of the country. You might see 90 days. I've heard of some people having six months notice. So in other words, you got to, shoot, I, I want to leave. This place is awful. The, the, the staff is angry all the time. The patients are just disgruntled. And, you know, I'm trying my best and I'm working too many hours. It's not as advertised. This isn't a good deal for me. And trust me, that's going to happen out there. People are going to say everything's wonderful. And then you get there and it's not at all as advertised two weeks in. But what what you do is you, you have to give a notice, right? You have to say, well, this isn't working. I'm going to write a letter that says I hereby effectively give notice of termination of the, of the contract. And um, on such and such date, I will no longer be uh, within this this contract and I will not be here. Well, you need to find out what that is, right? So if it's 60 days and you go to a new company, it's probably going to take 60 days for credentialing. Five weeks four weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. So you're probably not too far off with two months. So that's pretty reasonable. But if it's six months, if I go to work in another place and say, well, I can't be here until six months from now because I have to be in another place for the next six months, they're going to pass you up all day long. Unless they know you and they really want you, they might make it work. But if you don't know who this, this new company is and this new, new practice is, they're going to pass you up. It's just too onerous. You're never going to get done. It's, you're stuck there forever, or at least until your contract term is up. And so that's a way to keep people locked in. The other thing that you'll see is repayment of things. So you might say, well, if I terminate, I give a 60-day notice for termination of the agreement, um, but I have to pay back you know, my DEA. I have to pay back my insurance. I have to pay back any CMEs and things like that. Try to get those prorated. So if you work, you know, 23 months out of 24 months and you give them a 30 day notice and that's in the contract or you can make it reasonable. That doesn't make sense because you'd be done in 30 days anyways, but say it's 18 months in a 24 month contract and you give them your 60 days. If they say you got to pay everything back that they paid two years ago, that's pretty, pretty rough. You've made them way more money and covered that cost. That's not fair, right? So try to negotiate a prorated based upon month of service or something like that. And those are things that you can do. Or you can say, you know what? I'd be willing to pay the $2,500 to get out of the contract. I'll bite the bullet on that one. It's a good rate. It's good numbers. It's everything else that works. You just have to sit down with a piece of paper and write all this stuff out and see if it's worth it to you. If you negotiate on every term, they're going to pass you up because there's a ton of people out there that aren't going to negotiate at all. So you have to play that too. So you have to be realistic that even though these terms may be onerous, the likelihood of having those problems is pretty low. 
So you got to kind of pick and choose what your battles are. And a lawyer, again, may or may not know what those battles are. They're going to have you battle everything, you know, because then, then it's more back and forth and you pay them more money, right? Uh, it's, it's one of those gray questions. It depends. It depends on the circumstances, situations. So this is a really long one, but the contracts, but there's some good, I think, information in here. Um, if you guys don't like this format where I'm doing it this way, where I'm just talking about stuff, I don't know how else to do it right now. I really am looking for more uh, comments and questions on the webpage and in Facebook. Again, it's thenpdude.com. You can find me at thenpdude on Facebook. Um, you can also see me linked all over the place right now. A lot of people are starting to link my page. Like and share me because sharing is how it's going to get out there. And I'm going to get more information of what people want to hear about. And I'm hopefully going to start getting some um, connections with people that I could either Skype with them and have some kind of just discussions with different people and different practices and different ways of doing things across the country. I'm also looking at getting different uh, professionals on. Um, whether it's uh, ancillary services like physical therapy or um, experts on immunology, things like that. So I'm trying to get different stuff. And um, again, this is a hobby for me. So this is taking some time to get things set up. But hopefully once it's up and running, it's not going to be a lot of time. It's been a lot of fun. I, I've just it, talking with people and, and stuff through through the, the Facebook groups and things. It's just been a lot of fun. So I appreciate the support. Keep like, liking me on Facebook and uh, sharing as much as you can. Keep listening, and I'll talk soon. Thanks.